Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. This month's show, we have an interview with actor and playwright Nick Wilkes, who had some fascinating stories about some famous Hollywood names. Lucy takes on Jeff over his dismissive view of hereditary. That's one to look forward to. Our movie news is a real scoop as we report back from the set of a movie which recently filmed in Cheltenham. And no, Mel Gibson wasn't on set. Our reviews are the highly acclaimed First Man, the thriller Bad Times at El Royale, and of course, for Jeff, Halloween. Then the excitement drops for Jeff's quiz question. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror films. Of course, with October being the month of Halloween, my time has been mainly taken up with watching scary movies. And Neil. Mind you, Theresa May and Boris Johnson on the TV constantly battling it out like Freddy vs. Jason. You might well believe politics is far scarier than any monster feature. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. Jeff would like to think that October is just about scary movies, but this October has been an incredible month. Everything I saw this month was exceptional. A Star is Born, Bad Times at El Royale and The Incredible First Man. But also this month we had Venom and Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, and Slaughterhouse Rules. What a time to be alive. Hi, my name is Neil and I watch most films, including quirky films, as Jeff and Graham call them. <laughs> I won't watch horror anymore, despite Jeff trying to trick me with It's a PG, Neil, or It's just a thriller. Neil, I have to say, in our new introduction, you sounded very professional. You know, it reminds me of someone. Now, who was that? Oh, yeah, I remember. Brett Kavanaugh. In fact, like Brett, you constantly repeat the phrase, I like beer, especially when it's somebody else's round. Ha, bloody how. How the hell did that repulsive man win? Completely unlike my brave and heroic win in the sports movie debate. Not Not again. again. Bloody hell, how long is Neil going to live on past glories? Graham, talking of glories, and real ones, what has been happening with the superhero flops pod short? Okay, well, the listening figures for that short are just weird. Uh, The show was released in the middle of September and was pulling in about five or ten downloads a day. Then suddenly, on the 29th of September, it suddenly got 50 downloads in one day, all from California. From Sacramento in the north to San Diego in the south, another mystery to add to the 99 downloads for our short hereditary, all from Amsterdam. Just one final point, we picked up some new listeners in Chicago, so to the people of the Windy City, welcome. Interesting numbers, Graham. Before we get on to the show proper, let's have a look at what our regular listeners have been saying about our last show. From Philippa, really enjoyed it. Lucy was good to listen to and really interesting. As a result, I thought I might try a horror film some point soon. My advice, Philippa, would be to watch The Exorcist and say you don't need to watch any others. That's what I do. (laughs) And Paul says, and we don't need to censor him this month. Thanks, Paul. (laughs) Thank you, Paul. As a guy who had to edit your last... Love the extended length as it gave more time to bring out the detail. Clearly I wasn't comfortable with the draconian level of censorship applied to my review of the Happy Time Murders. Told you. Positively Trump-esque. Blame Graham Paul, he's the censor and he's already admitted it. Mind you, I notice as well he's starting to turn orange and he's off to the States soon, it must be a sign. 
Paul's final comment, which did make me laugh. The review of Lucky was awesome. Oh, thanks a bunch. Cheers, Paul. Meanwhile, from Deck, really enjoyed the podcast. Lucy was good. Reviews and movie news as good as always. But I bet you don't mean the sneaked in Mel Gibson bit, do you, Deck? Like the interview with Steve from Cineworld, yes, Deck, we will take up your other question with Steve. And Sarah also enjoyed the show, saying the two hours just flew by. Where time doesn't fly by is where we let Jeff loose on his quiz. On that subject, what was the answer to last month's quiz, Jeff? Thanks, Graham. I knew I could rely on you. If you can remember that far back, the question was, what famous role do these actors all have in common? Peter Cushing, Roger Moore, Christopher Plummer and Peter Cook. And to be fair, a lot of you did guess this. So well done. The answer, of course, is Sherlock Holmes. And I wasn't one of them who guessed that. No, me neither. Peter Cook threw me completely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic. Let's hope the show picks up from that. After all, there's certainly a lot to fit in. Let's go straight to the main feature, Music Maestro. I hope you're all sitting down for this news, or at least away from traffic, as I was at this interview. Some of the photos I took of the occasion are now in the show notes. Yes, we allowed Neil to come along as we travelled to Malvern to interview actor and playwright Nick Wilkes. As you will hear, Nick has some fascinating stories about his life and work. Also, a shout out to the Great Malvern Hotel, who were very accommodating to us. Jeff, over to you, propping up the bar in that hotel. Hello, and today your At The Flicks team are in the fantastic Great Malvin Hotel. We are here to meet Nick Wilkes, very talented Mr Wilkes, who's an actor, playwright, writer, musician, and various other things. Nick, welcome to the show. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. And you? I'm well. I'm old, I'm grey, but I'm well. I'm still standing. And the youngest around this table. I'm breathing in and out. Yeah, I can't complain, <laughs> really. <laughs> yeah. Well, take you away from that, AJ, because we're going to step back in, in time, because mm. when we first met, you were honing some of your technical skills at the sadly now long gone Cheltenham Odeon. Yeah. What are your memories of that place? Oh, the Odeon in Cheltenham. I loved it. Everyone loved it. I think there's a Facebook group somewhere of former employees that just chat and reminisce and long for the place because it was a lovely place to work. Yeah. It was a, a family sort of feel, uh, full of characters, um, some you loved, some you loathed. I'm very pleased to say I got on with everybody. But I loved the history of the place. There was this theatre hiding behind the false walls of a modern multiplex. Um, the Odeon was formerly, as you know, the Gaumont Theatre, built in 1933, could seat 2,002 people. The Beatles played there. And um, I don't think Bowie played there, but I know the Beatles did. And if you walk behind the screen on stage five, there was the stage where they stood. There was stage right, a wrought iron spiral staircase going up to the ghost of dressing rooms with cobwebs across the mirrors. (laughs) If you walked across the front of screen five in front of what was the lower half of the proscenium arch, you were walking across formerly the orchestra pit and your footfalls changed sound and it suddenly became very echoey and the, the theatre still existed behind the cinema and I loved both the theatre and the cinema that I worked in. It was great, really nice place. And I must admit when I was there, you always had a smile, you are always pleasant to everybody, Nick. Well, yeah, it went with a bow tie, didn't it? Um, <laughs> this was b- before the days of polo shirts and being all hip and cool. This was Odeon Cinema with Blue Blazer, 
blue bow tie and blue pinstriped grey trousers. We were always very smart in those days. And um, I did hate the bow tie because they issued you with a clip-on bow tie. And you never saw Cary Grant in a clip-on bow tie, did you? So um, I got my mother's friend who was a a seamstress to make me a a blue tie-up bow tie in the same royal blue. And I tied and untied that bow tie two or three times a day, going on and off shifts at the Odeon. And not once did Mr. Eggington, the manager, or Phil Cook, or Muriel Sutton, the, the assistant manager, not once did they say, that's not a regulation bow tie. Or, where did that bow tie come from? They never knew. It was the same size and I tied it perfectly. I don't think I ever saw Nick Eggington in a bow tie. No, no. You, <laughs> no, he was always very smartly dressed, Mr. Eggington. He was a good chap, a good boss, a yes. nice guy to work for. Um, sadly now gone. Uh, unfortunately gone, um, yes, that's right. I remember once it was a, a big birthday for him. You might have been there. And they threw a surprise party yes. for him in yeah, screen five, latterly screen seven. One of the girls in the box office had made him a waistcoat. He was known for wearing waistcoats under his suit. He was always a three-piece suit with Mr. Eggington. And they made him a waistcoat out of one of the Odeon... Um, Pinafores, one of the Odeon <laughs> that they used to wear behind the popcorn counter. Um, it was lovely, and he wore that most proudly for the next few days, um, knowing that he was beloved by his staff. And that's the sort of place it was. Um, yes. He ran it with a lot of love and a lot of care, and it sort of trickled down through the ranks. Everyone had a lot of respect for Mr. Eggington. Absolutely, he was a true gentleman. Good chap. Yeah. So, your time there, did that inspire your play Oscars? Well, yes, of course. <laughs> Did you see my play Oscars? I didn't, unfortunately. Shame on you. We'll have yeah. to do it again. Yeah, yeah I wrote a play um, called Oscars. It's going back a bit now. That's probably seven or eight years ago. And it was set in an uh, old cinema on its final day of business. This was largely influenced by the state of the Odeon Cinema in Cheltenham at that time. Oscars was in the play, a cinema that had been built by Oscar Deutsch, who founded the Odeon chain. It was an old former theatre, now a cinema, much like the Odeon in Cheltenham was. And at the time, the Odeon was struggling in trying to maintain its business in this old building that didn't match modern health and safety standards, that had poor disabled access, that was trying to compete with the quality of the newly opened modern multiplex just down the road. So all of this is sort of the background for the play Oscars. Some of the characters had traits of some of the staff from the Odeon at the time. I can't say any one character is based particularly on any members of staff. But yeah, I borrowed quite heavily from my time at the Odeon. The catchphrase was um, uh, what went on behind the screens, uh, which I thought was pretty good. Uh, the set was influenced by the decor of the Odeon in Cheltenham, right down to some of the details of the screen going into the doors. And yeah, it was a good play. Uh, the subplot of it was that the Beatles had once played there, as I just mentioned, and that during their gig, during their set, Ringo had lost a cufflink, and all the staff for decades had been looking for this cufflink. So if you found that cufflink, that was your lottery ticket. That would, you know, change the world. And I won't tell you what happened at the end of the play. You'll have to come and see it. Definitely. If you put that <laughs> but back But the cufflink's on, involved. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you put that back on, let us know. We will be there. Awesome. From, yeah. Yeah. So let's jump forward in time to 2015 and your one-man show. Now that must have been something of a daunting thing to do. How much planning did you put into your one-man show? Ah, yes, the one-man show. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was put together just by me to chat to my Mulvern audience about where we'd come so far, the plays we'd seen, what we were about to do. Um, and I just chat about the theatre. I tell them how I got into it, what I do, where I went to train, my first few years of work, people you've met, the type of work you find yourself doing. 
lastly, how that bled into writing plays and producing theatre and where I am now. And the talk can last between sort of half an hour through to two hours, depending on which anecdotes I put in. And people genuinely enjoy it. They recommend the, ch- uh, the talk. They found it informative, entertaining. They laugh a lot. We talk a lot. So the one man um, show was actually my first sort of foray into that. I thought if people are paying to see this talk in little community halls, maybe they'd pay to see it in a theatre space. So I did it just for one night mostly to tell people about the upcoming plays we were just about to do to build a wooden O in Malvern, which lastly we did at the RSC in Stratford last year. Um, and yeah, it was a good night, good fun. Excellent. Did you cover your talk with Charlton Heston at that? <laughs> oh, it's always good to drop a few names, isn't it? <laughs> Bring a dustpan and, and sweep up all the names I dropped. Yes, I mean, that's an interesting little fact that during my time at drama school, the Bristol Old Vic, um, which is just after I left the Odeon in yeah. Cheltenham, uh, in order to raise funds for the tuition fees at the Brislovic Theatre School, which were very expensive. Uh, I came from a farming family. We didn't have huge funds. Uh, I did interview Charlton Heston live on stage at the Roses Theatre in Tewkesbury. He agreed to the interview. Uh, he agreed that I could take the box office receipts towards my tuition fees, and we did exactly that. Right. I then showed one of his films afterwards because, you know, I did dabble with the old cinema projecting. And uh, we remained pen pals until he passed away. Um, he helped me tremendously, actually. Um, God bless him. Um, thank you very much, Mr. Heston. Um, it would have been tougher getting through Bristol without you. Yeah, and what, what I love about it, one of the interviews you give at the time, where a lot of your contemporaries were just writing off almost begging letters to people, you said, that's not the way I do things. So you come up with the idea of the interview, and uh, he agreed to it. Yeah, um, I remember my sort of classmates at Bristol, like me, were trying to raise funds. You, you'd write letters to grant making trusts and various foundations with sort of limited success. And some folks were writing to Ewan McGregor, Judy Dench, help, I'm a starving drama student, send money, else I won't be able to buy a pot noodle, you know, all these sort of things. Um, but I just didn't like the, the begging bowl aspect. I thought there was a, a one fell swoop more clever way to do it so I did notice in the Malvern Gazette local paper that he was appearing in a play called Love Letters with his wife here at Malvern Theatres so I wrote him a letter care of the Theatre Royal Haymarket in London where it was appearing at the time and I said hey you're coming to Malvern could I have an hour of your time please I don't want money from you but if you gave me an hour of your time I could complete my time at the Bristol Ovic where I'm studying Shakespeare. I mean, he was a huge oh, Shakespeare fan. Yeah, he played um, Macbeth five times, I think. During the interview, he delivered Prospero's final speech to me, you know, closer than we are sat here. I mean, it was astounding. It was brilliant. Anyway, yeah, he agrees. He phoned up. Well, he actually phoned my mother because I was at work at a, a hotel in the summer, uh, you know, trying to make some pennies. He phoned up my mother and said... Um, hello, can I speak to Nick Wilkes, please? Uh, no, he's not here at the moment. Can I take a message? <laughs> uh, yes, ma'am. Could you tell him Charlton Heston phoned and uh, if he could call me back at the Athenium Hotel, I'd be... Oh, OK, OK. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how it started. Um, way back when... Uh, gosh, that's getting on for 20 years ago now. It is, You're yeah. making me feel old, Jeff. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> so, what did the Roses think? You went to them and said, can I have your theatre for the evening? Well, I grew up at the Roses Theatre in Shakespeare. I love the Roses, and I'm really pleased to say that the Roses Theatre, after a, a period of ups and downs, is on the up again. It's had a yeah. big refit. They've got a brilliant new director in, Hannah Kester, that's just taken the reins. And I'm proud to say I'm on the board of directors now, the yes, board of trustees of trustee, the, yeah. the, the Roses Theatre in Shakespeare. So um, eyes open, the Roses is coming good, and a lot's going to happen there over the next few years. And so when... Uh, 
Charlton Heston phoned up and said, yes, I'll interview you. You, you can interview me rather on stage in front of a theatre audience. <laughs> I needed a theatre. So I, I went to the Roses because that was sort of the only theatre I was on really good, familiar speaking terms with and spoke to the then uh, director, the late Bob Hamlin, and said, I've got this. And he was very good. He and Judy, their um, marketing lady, cleared the decks and said, yeah, we'll do this. This is a national story. Let's get on with it. It did them no harm. Yeah. And it was. We were on not just like the front page of the local papers, but in the national papers as well. Um, The Telegraph, the Times, the Daily Mail. And all the publicity was good and it sold out. And yeah, I'm pleased to say it did pay my way for the rest of my time at the Bristol Vic. Wow. Wow. So, you know, you're there. Charlton Heston is, as far as I am from you, you've got an audience there. Was that daunting? Well, it was a bit different, you know. It's, <laughs> it's not the same as chatting to your wife over breakfast. Even, you know, it was nice all the same. I met him beforehand. Uh, he arrived at the theatre a little earlier. We chatted in the dressing room and we spoke about many things. Um, he was in no way worried about it. The local television was there to cover the event, you know, Midlands Today and Central News and, and all of that. And That's stuff. on YouTube now, that interview. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Crikey. Um, yeah. We had a... A bit of a, a press call beforehand where he spoke to the press, the local papers, and um, it was nice, actually. He wasn't nervous at all. He was very accommodating. He was a theatrical gent. Yeah. I think he'd done such interviews before in the States with various university students. It was nothing new for him. Yeah. And once you chat to him, you, you get past the fact that, oh, my God, you were in Planet of the Apes. Yeah. You were Ben <laughs> Hur. And you realise that he's just an actor who's still trying to work like everybody else. Um, the people that have really made it, very talented ones, um, they have no pretensions. There are no airs and graces. They're just people. And they're yeah. very pleased if you can just chat to them yeah. like they're people. Yeah. And he was one of those. Uh, he was one of those. He was very approachable and a lovely chap. What were your favourite stories of the nights that he was telling them? He spoke of many things. Um, we had a questions and answers session with the audience after the interview. And they asked some questions as well. I remember one member of the audience obviously uh, questioning his involvement with the National Rifle Association. Yeah, I was see if this was going to come <laughs> yeah. up. Um, and he said, well, I was brought up in the Michigan woods in the 1920s where if you didn't shoot a rabbit, you didn't eat. Yeah. So, you know, those sort of sensibilities of childhood are hard to, to get rid of. He, he didn't advocate the gun crime that exists in the United States. He was just proud to sit on various bodies. He walked with Dr. Luther King. Mm. You know, and, and we basically said, if you want to know his politics, read his autobiography. I've done it. It's very good. Um, and I did read his autobiography as prep before the interview. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you realise that actually that 1% of his life so many people focus on, whereas in actual fact, you know, he was a good friend of Bill Clinton. He met Winston Churchill. He, you know... He met so many people. Um, people used to collect handshakes. I found this an interesting thing that, you know, I've sh- shook this guy's hand, he shook that lady's hand, and in eight handshakes' time, I- I've shook Abraham Lincoln's, you know, hand. Yeah. That was a very, like yeah. the six degrees of separation, that sort of thing. I found that very interesting. So to think that I'm two handshakes away from Cary Grant, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and Jimmy Stewart and Cecil B. DeMille. Um, one thing, I'll conclude the Charlton Heston chapter telling you this. One thing that came out of that night was how an actor gets their big break. He maintained that many of the best actors in the world were unknown because they'd just not had a bit of luck. And everybody has to have a little bit of luck to to get to that next level. He let me know what his bit of luck was. He uh, was working in New York as an actor on the stage, you know, a jobbing actor like me, like everybody. But he had an audition come up in Los Angeles at a genuine film studio. I think it was MGM. 
Um, and so he got in his beat-up car and drove for five days across the United States to get to Los Angeles and went to the studio and did the audition and didn't do very well. Um, he left and thought, oh, well, that's that. And as he was walking out of the studio gate, Cecil B. DeMille was driving into the studio gate in his car. Obviously, they didn't know each other, but as a knee-jerk reaction, because he recognised this famous director, Charlton Heston put his hand up and waved and went, buddy hell, there's Cecil B. DeMille, and went on his way. Cecil B. DeMille went into the studio and said, who was the guy by the gate? And they said, oh, some actor, he wasn't very good, uh, he's gone on his way. He said, get him back, I like the way he waved. <laughs> That's brilliant. That was it. A knee-jerk, spontaneous wave to somebody somebody you don't know but you recognised was enough for him to come in and then it was the greatest show on earth with Jimmy Stewart and, well, the films continue and continue. continue. But there would have been no Charlton Heston, world-famous screen actor, perhaps, had he not waved at that precise moment just because somebody was driving a car at that time. So we're, we're still waiting for that bit of luck. I wave at every famous <laughs> person every that I job. see, <laughs> every car. Uh, it hasn't happened yet, but, you know, we keep waving. You never know what might happen. Yeah. That's your interview. If in doubt, wave. Sure, exactly. Hey, I'm being sh- listen, uh, listeners. I'm being shown on a very fancy phone YouTube <laughs> footage of uh, the evening. Uh, there I am. Gosh, look at me with short hair. <laughs> Less wisdom hairs there. Uh, Nick Wilkes, Nick Wilkes, and, and Charlton Heston. Yeah, um, and that was it. The Roses Theatre looked a diff- little different then. It's had a big um, architectural refurb. Gosh, yeah. that, was, that was the roses. That that was my roses. Yeah. Yeah. We were there yeah. a couple of months ago. We went to see the breadwinner, the animated okay. film, which is really good. good. Very good. So uh, I understand you uh, worked on a film called the, Those Foolish Things. Oh yeah, yeah. We've all done our share of extra work. It's not uh, brilliant from an acting point of view. You don't get to stretch your muscles much, but the costumes are nice. The catering's always good, and you meet some interesting people. I did two. <laughs> I did two extras jobs. This is going back many years now. One was a film called um, These Foolish Things, and it was set in the war years. And the Bristol Old Vic, actually, in King Street, Bristol, had been decked out to look like a West End theatre during the Blitz. There were sandbags everywhere and whatnot. I was dressed in a blue Air Force uniform, and I was wandering about the street, holding the arm of some little old lady. She was very nice. Latterly, I stood outside a building that had been set up to look like a recruiting office, and I was sort of stood there in the uniform, almost like a doorman, sort of watching people as they came in. And the chap... Out of Love Actually, not Hugh Grant, the fellow that held up the signs, what's his name, and romanced Kira Knightley. Do you remember him? Yeah, yeah. Andrew Lincoln. That's the chap. He was in the film, he was one of the names, and he uh, sort of bounced up these stairs into the recruiting office, and I sort of nodded to him as he went in, and that was that. Latterly, here's a nice twist of fate, I was projecting that film, still 35 mil in those days, at the Forum Theatre here in Malvern, and they showed these foolish things as a one-off special. I probably shouldn't tell you this. I'm going to. That scene where Andrew Lincoln popped up the steps and I'm stood there as the recruiting officer was at the end of a reel, and it then clicked into a new reel. So the last dozen frames of that reel, he's already entered into the building, and it's just me on the screen, in a uniform, on the stairs. So I must admit, when I was um, splicing that film, (laughs) taking it apart, I did have the last six frames of that uh, celluloid reel of me on the silver screen, and I use it as a bookmark. So there you go, that's... (laughs) Brilliant. And that Andrew Lincoln, he's done all right for himself, hasn't he? Yeah, he's doing all right. Yeah. He's doing all right, you know. And I understand you once had a day sitting opposite Johnny Depp on the set of The Liberty. Oh, girl, we really are, yes. 
trawling through the Wilkes archives here. <laughs> yes, I did extra work for a day on a film called The Libertine, which was a Johnny Depp film. It had Johnny Vegas in it as well, John Malkovich, Tom Hollander, uh, who is in the upcoming Bohemian Rhapsody film. Brilliant. I like Tom Hollander. Um, I, <laughs> yes, I, it was set in the uh, 16th century, late 16th century. It was all curly um, Charles II sort of wigs. And it was in a coffee house, which wasn't Starbucks or Cafe Nero in yeah. those days, or Coffee Number One. It was a, almost like an opium den, a coffee house. And it was filmed out in a stately home near Stratford-on-Avon. And I was sat in this room, and uh, I was on this table, and on that table, about the same distance as you are from me now, about three feet away, was Johnny Vegas, Tom Hollander, and, and Johnny Depp. And I sat and watched them. I thought, all right, well, we'll take this as a, a drama class. Let me study their performances. That's what I'll do here today and see what I could learn. And I watched Johnny Depp doing this scene and he did nothing. He did absolutely nothing. He mumbled. He wasn't acting as far as I could see. There was no performance in his face. I thought, well, this is rubbish. What a, how disappointed was I? Of course, latterly, if you watch the film, the scene is magnificent. <laughs> He's acting his socks off and this, the camera picks up everything. Um, so that taught me a great lesson about screen acting. But during uh, one break in filming, I was sat there in this glorious costume I'd been given and I was looking at him and he did just look across to me and say, that's, that's a nice coat. Why haven't I got that coat? And I said, well, that's because I'm a good-looking bloke. <laughs> and he didn't talk to me again. So. <laughs> that was my 30-second conversation with Johnny Depp 20 years ago. There you go. Well done. Brilliant. Going back to... Uh, though, we spoke about those foolish things, or these foolish things, which had Lauren McCall had. Also had Robert Mitchum in it, I believe. Is that Robert Mitchum? I uh, don't know. I think it had, it had a few people. It had Angelica Houston. It had, it had Malcolm McDowell in it. Um, but they were never on, okay. on the set that day. I, I only met um, Andrew, well, saw Andrew Lincoln walk past me, um, saw him at a distance putting golf balls in his trailer. Right. Um, <laughs> the, the, the reason I mentioned Robert Mitchum, it, it ties in what you're saying there, is that um, there was an actor who once worked with him, and Mitchum would get his script, look through it, and write um, NAR against certain bits, and nobody could work this. What, this all meant and this went on and he went on he did all his lines on there but again there were these words against certain parts of the script and somebody heard him and said uh, Bob what does the NAR mean oh, no acting required no acting required <laughs> yeah, and of course when you, when you see that on screen it looks magnificent yeah. you just can't believe you know this guy who's doing virtually nothing just reading out these lines but it just comes across tremendous in cinema you do find that some people have a skill for screen acting and some people are more at home on stage I know several stage actors who I don't particularly rate, but on screen they're great, really, really great. There are, uh, conversely, some screen actors, especially you'll see this at Christmas time when soap actors appear on stage in panto, and uh, they're just dreadful on stage. Yeah. Yeah, their voices are awful, their posture's dreadful, they can't carry a tune, and I think audiences are disappointed when they walk out on stage and don't get a performance. Um, they just recognise them from the box in the corner of their living room, and that's why they pay 20 quid to go and see it, which is a shame. Occasionally you see somebody like Ray Fiennes or Kenneth Branagh, and they are magnificent. Mm. On stage they are epically brilliant, and on screen they're the epitome of talent. Yes. Uh, I mean, Kenneth Branagh's brilliant. Ray Fiennes is stunning. I saw Kenneth Branagh in Winter's Tale at the Garrick a couple of years ago, uh, the Winter's Tale I, I never 
rated as my favourite Shakespeare play. Also had Judy Dench in it and a few other few other people. And I came out of that production thinking, this is the most amazing play in the world. Why are not Why is not everybody doing The Winter's Tale? This is magnificent. I mean, he was just astoundingly good. So there you go. That's what you need. Brilliant screen persona, magnificent stage presence. I'll keep on waving and see how I get on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought he was good in uh, Murder in the Orient Express's take okay. on Hugo mm. Poirot was didn't see certainly well worth tracking yeah, down. Didn't see chance. that one. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time from your busy schedule today. And you're welcome. Uh, you've got three new fans here, so we'll be checking for your plays and we'll be coming to see some of those. Thank yeah. you. Keep checking Definitely. on com or follow the social media. You'll see what I'm doing there or thereabouts. Well, right. We'll let you go back to your writing. Thank, thank you very, you very much. much. Right. Cheers. Thanks. Excellent. Some wonderful stories. A genuinely nice chap and extremely talented. We will keep you posted when we get details of the next play Nick is staging. Hopefully, at some point, Oscar will be put back on, as we all want to see that. Before that, we're planning a pod short with Nick to discuss his theatre work. OK, Graham, some spooky music, please, for the horror section of the show. Yes, that music tells us it is time to join our newest contributor to the show. This month, Lucy joins us to talk more about recent horror films. Welcome back, Lucy. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Glad to be back again. Uh, hi, Lucy. Glad I see we're continuing with horror movies again. I can We are. Sorry to put you through that. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. Wait. Oh, no, no, don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. I'm not listening anyway. Neil suffering. <laughs> Neil suffering is what I live for. Um, <laughs> oh, that'd be funny if it wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> so what's our theme this month? We've got intellectual horror, yeah? Oh, fantastic. I, yeah, uh, nice. So that's not an oxymoron. <laughs> no, 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 no. Is, yeah. no. No. I think on this one we may disagree. Did you get a chance to listen to my pod short I did in Hereditary? I did, yes. I made a special effort to listen to that. <laughs> and, I, and I get your points, but I'm, re- I'm looking forward to rebutting them Absolutely, later on. <laughs> I look forward to that, particularly when we come to the yeah, witch. Yeah, Hereditary has caused a lot of controversy amongst horror fans, so it's going to be a good discussion, I'm sure. And, and what I find interesting with it is it seems to be an age thing as well. So uh, Mark Camo didn't like it either. It's such a shame that he didn't. Yeah, well, we'll, <laughs> uh, we'll, um, we'll get to that in a minute. So I define this as... Films like It Comes at Night, The Babadook, it, it focuses yep. on one aspect, single parenthood, grief, isolationism. Yep. Do you agree with that or not? Yes, I absolutely do agree because I feel like real life in itself can have some absolutely harrowing moments. You know, like you said, grief, divorce, these these horrible moments where your life changes for the worse. And horror really does play on that. Hereditary, you know, even the title just gives it away. You know, it's it's about a family. It's a family horror. And I absolutely agree that, you know, there's lots of concerns in, in wider society that, that horror jumps on. And death, certainly, and hauntings and things like that. The Babadook, genuinely, I haven't seen It Comes at Night, and I hate to admit this, but I, I love The Babadook. I just thought it was such a fantastic film, terrifying. Just even the appearance of The Babadook itself just gives you nightmares. That, that's um, the, no, that's the one I do yeah. agree with. That is the one I do like of this whole thing. The child and that and how she struggles, you know, with, with his condition... It's such a heart-wrenching film, I think, and just keeps you keeps you on your toes. And The Babadook, it, it genuinely did scare me when I first saw that. 
and, and I feel like it did such a good job. Um, I will make a mental note to watch it comes at night, though. Let's go to Hereditary then, because this is where this is sure. leading towards. I, I think it had good points. I just okay. thought the ending was really Rosemary's Baby on speed. <laughs> I, I, I love that analysis. That's great. <laughs> I I disagree. But, okay. um Good yeah, woman. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, because uh, we have to listen to a lot of nonsense from Jeff, and it'll be nice to hear somebody with who can actually take him to pieces <laughs> on horror. Oh well, I'll try my best. Um, but I feel like I'm, I'm going to have a lot of spoilers here, just a warning to everybody out there. But you know, Hereditary for me, it had a lot of scenes in which you know you're sort of just sitting in your seat and you're just absolutely shocked like like that car the, the infamous car scene when he basically decapitates his own sister yeah it's like oh my god did i just watch that and i think the whole cinema certainly for me you could hear a pin drop because everyone just went quiet and, and, and everyone uh, was like oh yeah. my god what just happened you know and, and you don't actually see anything but you know fine well what's happened and i do and, agree yeah. with you and and the fact he went home mm. then and tried to like say and, and we've all been there. You know, we've done something that we think, no, I didn't just do that. If I go away, it'll all disappear. And I love that. Yeah. And then it just cuts back. And I, that, to me, was the highlight of the film. I would agree with you on that. You know, it wasn't gratuitous. It wasn't, you know, unnecessary. But it was just that sort of sudden impact. And everyone just goes, oh, my God. And then you sat in the car. And there's that kind of long, almost uncomfortable shot where I'm looking at his face. Yeah. And you almost expect something to pop out at you at that point. It doesn't, but you just sat there and it just lingers. And then he goes home and he just goes to bed. And then you have Tony Collette, who I love, and just her screaming and crying. And it's, again, it's, it's that grief. It's that sense of just lost my little girl. Oh, my God. And it's just her whole world collapses. I went to see it with a few colleagues and they all, all praised her performance, you know, and, and, and they said that that scene really hit them the most when she's just hysterical. I think that is the heart of the film and i think that is the moment where everybody goes oh my god like this is not going to be an enjoyable ride for us you know no um, no but I, I would love to know the scenes particularly for you that you didn't enjoy and i, I will give you my insight on, okay. on the ones you didn't like most, most of it comes towards the end I, I didn't relate to any of the characters to start with even tony collette i felt they were cold and distant mm, and okay. i didn't they just didn't. There was a point early on where Tony Collette was at the grief council, and at that mm. point she almost let go. And I thought, okay, maybe that's the way into that character. But it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. She's cold and hard. Her husband is weak and defensive. The son mm-hmm. never lets anybody in. The daughter is weird anyway. Cutting heads off birds is never going to win her to over to me. I, I mean, I wouldn't want to be her friend. No, no, it's for sure. So, so all of that, you were outside of it watching it doesn't draw you in, which I think a great horror film should do. But I think yeah. particularly for me was the ending. And it was, you know, like, I may almost be one, but I don't want to see nude pensioners on film. Just call me irresponsible here. So you had all of that, which I'm thinking, what, if this point you, I don't see it. The, the thing where she's in the corner of the room, up in the ceiling, yeah. I thought was brilliant. And then yeah. they had the effects, like she's flying around the house. I'm thinking, no, I didn't expect to see a superhero movie tonight. And, and, yeah, no, I get that. Yeah, and, and, mm-hmm. and it just goes over and over the top. Now, you compare that to Rosemary's Baby, 
Have, have you seen Rosemary's Baby? I have, and yeah. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. It's certainly how you even you don't you never see the child. No. Exactly. Y- y- yet you're still terrified. Yeah, mm. love that. And it builds up, and everything. You know, it has its own crescendo, but it's muted. And for that, mm. the horror worked better for me than this one. It was so over the top when it, it became, and the cinema was just laughing away at it. Really, and I think. Did you have that when you saw it? Um, no, actually, my audience, I, I saw it at, um, at Covent Garden, and everyone was everyone was kind of, there was a lot of silence, actually. It was a very uncomfortable film. There was not a lot of audience reaction, because I think everyone was so stunned, m- myself included. Um, but I think just your comments on the family, I think whilst I kind of agree with you, I think a big part of it was that we're not part of their family, we're, we're looking in, they're not going to let us in, and we're just seeing that this nightmare unfold for them. And I feel like Toni Collette, yeah, like she was she was quite cool, but, you know, she just lost her mother. She was going through all of this, you know, and I think she did have more, you know, personality than the rest of them. I didn't really like her husband. I thought he was a bit annoying, but I also appreciate that she's absolutely losing her mind. He just thinks it's grief and he's kind of trying to rebut it. He's going, oh, no, it's fine. Everything's fine, which does happen. You know, sometimes people don't believe you. And yeah. I just saw them as such a dysfunctional like almost gothic family and and that that really it did appeal to me but i i obviously do understand your criticism but i just felt that you know it wasn't my family i'd had nothing to do with them and i did i did feel like a bit of a voyeur looking in but that was good for me and i feel like that was kind of reflective of the little model house she was building as well like I, i kind of linked it back to that but it's very <laughs> divided opinion in the community has hereditary. I, I love, and I love that about it. Yeah, I love your use yeah. of the words gothic family, and that certainly is uh, something yeah. related to the Adams family. So, what did you think of the ending when it just went mental? Yes, I agree with you that it's kind of like, whoa, this is a bit crazy, but you know, like they're a cult, so like, would we really understand what they were doing? You know, like I'm. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I'm not part of a cult. You know, <laughs> like we we don't really understand the kind of cultist behaviour. So so. Yes, it looked a bit crazy, but I Neil, kind of... Neil does. He plays golf as a cult. Oh, yeah. the golf cult. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah I agree oh, with no. that one. Yeah. Another cheap shot. Yeah. yeah. Oh, damn. I'm, I'm used to it. <laughs> you know, it was very odd behaviour, but it was almost like looking at a culture which we would never understand. So I didn't really mind that kind of odd, weird, floating around behaviour because it was something that I would never be expected to understand, just for my analysis. And I also like the use of like decapitated heads on like sort of idols and worshiping that was bizarre, yeah. the, the 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 dead girl and kind of channeling this person through her brother. You know it. I, I liked it. You know, and like okay. obviously you're more than entitled to your opinion. Oh no, every, but, and, and that's like... what, but it is interesting to hear. Yeah, your <laughs> yeah. your side of it and and the use of as course, I said, yeah, gothic yeah. family was. Uh, yes. a way of framing them that I hadn't thought of so that's good I would recommend yeah. um, I think it's on YouTube the 1977 mm-hmm. film The Sentinel uh, sorry okay, Christina cool. Raines because you see that ending but you see yeah. that ending reflected in Hereditary and everybody talks about Rosemary's Baby but The Sentinel for me there's so much of that in in the ending okay. of Hereditary I'll, I'll check that out yeah sure. I'll be interested yeah, in your view in it. it it's not a great film it's directed by Michael Winner so um, ah, yeah, don't right, okay. bl- yeah, don't don't blame me. So okay, <laughs> that's hereditary, and that's said it, yep. it had its good points, and I fully respect your opinion, and you were clearly seeing different things in it to, to I did. So, but mm. I could, but what I would say is I could watch hereditary again. I could not watch the witch again. 
Um, oh, right, yes, yes. And okay. I'm a huge Ralph Ennison fan. Right? Mm. I'd watch him in just about... I, I watched him in The Hurricane Heist on Sky. Um, <laughs> that's how committed I am. But in this yeah. film, I just... I, so, I would send I, Graham and Neil into this film and they'd come out unscathed. Can, can I just go back to Hereditary for a second? Of course. Uh, you said something quite interesting there, Lucy. When you said about the, the doll's house. Now, the doll's house is in the trailer a lot. Is that a level of abstraction that's in the film itself? Is this a, a way, this is how the family really is, this is a metaphor for looking at the family, being an outside observer, looking at mm. the family, or is it that just, they just did that as a prop for the um, for the trailer? It's funny because I think from, I mean, it's been a while since I watched it, but I feel like she was, the mother was sort of building this house for a project. Um, But it's also used throughout the film as a sort of, you know, this is a happy family with things going on and then this is what's really going on. So I just felt like it was very much like a sort of, you know, like a parallel, like contradiction. But for me, like analysing it as as an observer, I, I did really enjoy the use of that. Um, I did read a lot of critics that didn't really know what the significance was, but to me, I thought it was very clever. So yes, I would think it was kind of intended for a metaphor, but you know, I'm I'm not the director, but I, I would like to think that that's what they were trying to do. Yeah, because it's not our family; it's like a different one. But it's also a, a measure of control because her yeah. mother controlled that house and she didn't. To me, the use of the doll's house, there's a level of control you can put onto these events. Uh, and, yes. and recreate it in your image. Yeah. She was very much, a, very much a, a very powerful matriarch, and I feel like hmm. Gabriel Byrne's character basically didn't do anything. You know, so you're absolutely right in that sense. Okay, mm. interesting. Uh, I'll, yeah. Never, yeah. I'll never see it, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, The Witch. Okay, I'm The Witch. I'm looking then, yes. forward to your views on this one. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, do you mind telling me what you didn't like about it, just so I can get your opinion first, okay. and then I will kind no, of chime in with, with, so, with me? Uh, firstly, I didn't find any of it horrific at all. I felt that it was ri- it was written as a horror movie from the perspective of somebody living in that age. So in our modern mm. age, looking at it, you don't see any of it as frightening. Um, yeah. It was quite slowly paced, and again... The characters were all barking mad, and I didn't really <laughs> go with any of them. Um, I'm, I, I couldn't tell you now if the very end of the film was really happening or it was in the young girl's imagination. I don't know. It just, it just left me totally cold. Now, this is interesting. We saw it with Mark Commode earlier, and Mark Commode thinks The Witch is a classic. Yes, yeah. I would agree with him. Yeah. yeah. I feel like, for me... You know, I, I understand, you know, this kind of slow pacing, everyone's a bit nuts, and there's that kind of level of, like, tedium. But certainly in this age, there wasn't really anything for you to do. Like, it was set in, I believe it was 1630, like-ish, kind of, like, yeah, very, that, like, you yeah. know, that, that kind of um, era. And, you know, you kind of, you know, there was a lot of superstition, a lot of, like, oh, you might be a witch, you might not. It was very Puritan, you know, it was very... um unlike an era that we're familiar with. So I, I would disagree with your point and say that filming filming it like this made it more realistic because it's not modern. It's very in the past. So I just think it was nice to kind of have that fresh look on horror and something that's refreshing not to just have jump scares every 10 seconds. I found it quite 
you know, it, it's just a different take on, on the word horror because for me it has so many different branches that come out of it. You know, it, it doesn't have to just be jump scares. It can just uneasy, you know, and, and that, there is a lot of moments in it. Like, you know, the, the witch does kill a baby at the beginning of it. You know, it's not exactly very graphic, but it's still there. Mm. And it's that sense of hysteria within the community, like, oh, witch has stolen my child. Oh, you know, like it's... And people would have believed this back in the day, you know, if anything went wrong. You know, even if your laundry was too white, you would have been called a witch. <laughs> That's basically how it was back in those days. There was so much hysteria. And and that leads me on to another problem I have with the film. And, and all films that deal with this is, because obviously in history... You know, yeah. witchcraft was used as a way to repress women. I yeah. find that very uncomfortable to watch. And, and mm-hmm. I think in this it plays, you know, if it plays, well, there are real witches. No, they weren't real witches. It was just a way to keep women oppressed. Maybe that played into it for me. I don't know. It, but on any level, it didn't work. And the talking goat, well, that was it. I was off. Oh, he, yeah. he was my favourite part. <laughs> and, and, and I think well said. A24 does have this kind of tendency to have such a more millennial audience. And, I, and you know, Heredity was A24 as well. And it's very yeah. much, you know, horror for people like me. So Jeff is too <laughs> um, old to watch it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, just say yes, it's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, we finally um, got something we can use against them. Yeah. No, Jeff, it's... Yeah, yeah, no, but, it... but Black Phillip is fantastic. I love Black Phillip. But no, I can see why you wouldn't. <laughs> um, it's just, it's a very strange film and it's very much, what if there were witches? What if people were scared of them? And obviously it's very much about empowerment against your communities and turning to the dark side to sort of build yourself up i don't know it's a hard one for me because i don't understand why people don't like it but i just i just love it so much i just think it's so great no no well Um, from from my perspective it's just not scary but i am now really curious what i have been scared with this is to a millennial horror film yeah I mean, yeah. yeah. You mean I could be too old, Neil? Yes, definitely. Oh, God, well, almighty. I think you already are, but I mean, <laughs> could be. <laughs> Isn't that the thing with film, though? Film can just evolve to create and appeal to a very small demographic. Yeah. Um, you know, so certain films like would not interest me in the slightest. I'd be like, oh, well, I've got no interest in that. Like, for me... I have no interest in Mamma Mia at all, for example. I'm like, oh, <laughs> no, we're with boring. you on that one. Yeah, yeah, no, that's boring. Boring. I, I, like, I, like, yeah. My mum would watch that, you know. And for, <laughs> and for me, there are films that are on the flip side, like people like me would not be interested in it at all. But that's also the beauty of film. Like it has such a different target audience yeah. per individual piece, doesn't it? Which is great. Um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Um, that you just brought real horror home to me because I had to take my wife to Mamma Mia. But no, no, that's that is a fair, and it's something I need to think about. Is mm-hmm. am I now too old for certain films? And that's a fair point. You know, films mm. aren't made with my demographic in mind, <laughs> unless it's the best. Marie, shut them. yeah and on the flip side films aren't made with my demographic in mind either like it just depends on on you and your personal tastes absolutely (laughs) since i've retired i've sneaked in underage to our senior screen screenings down at view yeah yeah cup of tea (laughs) thursday morning three quid cup of tea and a biscuit and a film unfortunately i've seen most of the films but uh yeah that's all right you know what lucy i'm not sure i agree I'm not sure I agree that the f- f- I, I agree that films are aimed at a certain demographic. Okay. But I don't believe that 
Jeff's too old to go and see a horror movie, you know, or that. No, you know, of course. Of but course. but what I'm what I think is that if a film's good, and it doesn't matter what it is, it's yeah. it's good and it stands up on its own two feet. And you know, there are some films that I've been to see recently, and I've thought, oh, this is going to be terrible. And I've thought, oh, this is a masterpiece, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and this happens a lot with little indie films and things like that, where you go in and, yeah. you, and you watch these things, and they're, and they're clearly not aimed at me. But it's, all, it's all a matter of perspective. It is yeah. perspective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, but old, yeah. older people are going to have a different perspective yeah. On, yeah. on things, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Graham and I were watching Maudie, uh, the Sally Hawkins, <laughs> um, Ethan Hawke film. Which okay. I just didn't know that would work, and that was just genius. If that's not in my top ten of the year, I'll, I'll be it. amazed. I, I, honestly, yeah. I was. I went along and I thought, yeah, this is going to be okay. It's got Sally Hawkins in. I really like her. I think she's a fine yeah. actress. Fantastic. And then I sat down, and within ten minutes, I was going, "Oh my god, this is knocking it out of the park in every department." Mm. So the music caught me. It was all sort of folk music, just a guitar and piano and a voice. And I thought, oh, that's brilliant. And then the cinematography. And I don't think I'm in their demographic, you know, for a Canadian folk <laughs> artist, you know. But it of was course. just wonderful, wonderful thing. And at the end, I thought, no, I want it to continue. Can we just dig her up and we'll have another two hours of this, you know, because she, can't, she <laughs> no. can't be dead. Nice. It's wonderful. <laughs> Thanks for that. And oh, I like the, to- I like the, I, I really like the talking goat in it as well. I thought that was good. That's good. <laughs> goat. We should always yeah. have a talking yeah. goat. Yeah. Yeah. All don't, films should have a talking bloody, goat. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, no. I you've made a very good point in that there are certainly films that are universally liked or disliked by a wide demographic but there are also certainly films that kind of miss the mark for certain people and then they get yeah. negative press from and it's, it's not the formula for every film so you're absolutely right you know that there are certain films that have surprised me for example crazy rich asians i was like oh, i'm not gonna like this and i loved it honestly like i only went to see it because i had a limitless like screening for it so i wasn't actually paying any extra but fantastic film and i hate rom-coms but i do feel like a lot of films of have a very niche market for like who they're actually targeting and i think the witch is a prime example of that but no but, it's a very good point but is is it not just in, in genre uh film that you get this sort of people who either like it or hate it i think you'll find Possibly. this in, in sort of sci-fi people will go that's a brilliant sci-fi film and people will go no it's, it's rubbish and you know, oh, yeah, and, and you absolutely. get it in Star Wars. You know, I thought the last yeah. Star Wars film was fantastic. Me Finally, too. the end of the Skywalkers. You don't have to be a Skywalker to have the Force, and everything's up for grabs now. And the Star yep. Wars community went nuts about it. Yeah, I idiots, it. idiots. And I thought it was brilliant. And yeah, I, I did. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was the you know the, oh, the yeah. what have the Jedi ever done? Why are we doing this? We're not. It's not horror. Let's no, stop I know. That. We just yeah. We're, but we just. But I just want to not just to end on that point yeah. and pick it up from Grant. And you're right. And at yeah. the at the end of the day. That is just a film. And what happened to that girl in that film, Last Jedi, the way she had to come off Twitter, come off all social media, oh, that, was yeah. that was just disgusting. I, I was so furious about that, honestly. Like, like fans take it too far sometimes, yeah. honestly. And it's like, it's just a film. You need to stop harassing people. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, yeah. It's, it's pathetic, honestly. Yeah, Absolutely. And, but, yeah. I, and I, to be honest, I thought she played a good part. Yeah, and, mm. and yeah, yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah. I thought, yeah, and it's it's the same. J.K. Rowling gets a huge amount of hate mail because of Harry oh, Potter, yeah. and I'm going. She made it up. 
It's yeah. a story. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. You know, they're going, no, no it's... People exist, yeah. And you're like, oh, come so on. Silly. It's, yeah, it's, it's made up. And she said Dumbledore was gay and then it all oh, kicks right. off. Yeah. What? Who cares? Mm. Yeah. It's about learning when to remove yourself from the situation. Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> I, Absolutely. I, I, I kind of, I view films as escapism and sort of, you know, fun. I love to do it on the weekend. I love to yeah. just watch them. But I'm not going to, like, harass the director. Like, oh, how dare you do this? Like, I've got better things to do, frankly, and bluntly. Yes. I, you know, there's, there's no need for me to do that. No. You know, I, I, I just, I don't understand fan mentality sometimes, but yeah, absolutely. that's an entirely different discussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, another one I feel coming up on that at yeah. some point. Um, right, I'm just <laughs> conscious however, of time however, as well. However, I yeah. would say that Mamma Mia is the work of the devil. So I don't <laughs> Agreed, now that is real horror. <laughs> and, and, and that was from an atheist as well, so that's how scary that was. Shocking. Uh, so this has been a very interesting discussion. I'm conscious of time. Lucy, you've given me some really interesting things to think on, particularly with hereditary. No, I'm not so sure about the witch, but hereditary, <laughs> you've made some sure. really valid points for me there. And I still think Graham and Neil could watch the witch and have no problem with it. Yeah, no, I would agree. It's definitely not convention- okay. like horror conventional in the sense. I think you're not going to be terrified by it, I don't think. It's just got a very dark tone to it. So give it a go. We'll we'll let you Talk know you. from the padded cell sure. we end up in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, yeah. You can pay my therapy bills. Yeah. <laughs> okay, no problem. Right. Okay, Lucy, it's been great to talk to you. Same time next month. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Thank, Thank you. you. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Thank you. It's always good to listen to someone who can put Jeff in his place. I really enjoyed that. That said, there is no way I will be watching The Witch. Okay, quick change to suits, guys, as we go to the movie news desk. Welcome to a very special movie news section. In fact, one so special, all three of us are going to be covering the same story. And without squabbling. In October, your At The Flicks team were invited to the set of the film Last Chances, which has recently been filming in both Cheltenham and Tewkesbury. Last Chances is the brainchild of writer and director Phil Stubbs, who has spent a number of years developing a script which can certainly be described as genre-hopping. In essence, the plot is about two chances, Flynn, played by Ellis J. Webb, and Aidan, played by Harry Dyer, who have 24 hours to find £25,000 to pay off a rather nasty criminal, played by Brian Croucher, who some may remember from Blake Seven or face the painful consequences. At times funny, other times scary, Last Chances will definitely be a film to look out for next year. Phil and his producer Ben very kindly agreed we could go on set and watch part of the night shoot. At our age, well, Jeff especially, uh, we knew we couldn't last the whole night. The venue for our filming was the picturesque Manor by the Lake in Cheltenham. When we arrived, we could already see it was a hive of activity. People with deliveries and setup was taking place. Quietly, we parked up around the back and walked to the house through a lit nighttime route, which could only be described as something out of the movie The Shining. <laughs> Don't forget the scary voice, Graham, which I'm sure Jeff arranged. Oh, oh. thanks, Neil. I blocked that one from my mind. Yeah, we passed a large bush and there was a pre-recorded shout that frightened the living daylights out of me. Oddly, we never did find out what happened there, and I share Neil's view that this was something Jeff would have set up. It wasn't as if I wasn't nervous enough 
before we got to the set, as Jeff had arranged the visit, I was convinced, I really was convinced that Mel Gibson would be on set and I'd have to suffer some real grief because of all the things I'd said about him. Luckily for Graham, he wasn't there. Instead, we met some talented actors. Before talking about the people we met, I want to point out what was going on when we arrived. Prior to us turning up, two key sequences had been filmed. A chase across a car park in front of the manor, which involved two male leads and a crowd of extras, and one through the house involving the rather chilling masked criminal sidekick called Jester. We went into the manor and watched the set being dressed for the big event of the night, a sequence involving a masked ball. It was a stunning set with fully decorated tables, one centrepiece for one of the villains, including a very scary devil mask and a large, well-lit expanse for the many guests or ex- extras to appear. Now, we watched the setup for a while and then went to the rooms within the manor set aside for the cast and crew. First up, we've got to give a shout-out for extras Zoe, Ellie and Luke, who were dressed in all their fineries for the upcoming Masquerade Ball. They were very excited and keen to be on set. We also saw them hours later still going through their paces and still cheerful and enjoying themselves. At one point early on, we were, believe it or not, mistaken (laughs) for potential extras, but one look at Neil and that misunderstanding was very quickly put right. Again, very funny. Although you would have been perfect for the more horrific sequences... Writer-director Phil Stubbs, the man behind this terrific project, was able to spare us a few minutes to introduce himself and talk about the time it's taken to get this, his dream child, to this stage in the filmmaking process. Phil was coming towards the end of his punishing three-week shoot for this, his first feature film. To put this into perspective, a film of this length would normally expect a six-week shoot. The fact that everyone was still smiling and had the energy to continue on the film shows how committed they all were. You will be able to hear directly from Phil in an upcoming interview, which we are hoping to have ready for the November podcast. While this discussion was taking place, I started chatting to some of the behind-the-scenes team. Adam, the sound recorders, had an incredible array of kit I was very jealous of. I would talk more about it, however, Jeff and Neil would just nod off again. <laughs> All I will say is our podcast would sound even more professional if I had access to some of that recording equipment. One thing to add, though, the Manor by the Lake is near to Staverton Airport and the constant problem Adam had as he was making this movie was to make sure that there were no planes flying overhead or near when he was recording. I will never complain about Jeff's boiler clicking on ever again. I also spoke to Lucy, the film editor, who gave me a crash course on the digital filmmaking process and how her work can begin before the whole film project is completed. That said, it will take a couple of months for her and Phil to edit and colour correct before the movie's rough cut is ready. Now, as well as crew, we did get to speak to some of the cast. The very lovely and talented Lisa Ronigan plays the female lead, Flynn's girlfriend, You may well remember her from such TV work as Grantchester and Humans and the movie Bodies. Lisa had a very pivotal moment to film in the Masquerade Ball. We won't tell you what it is, as we don't want to spoil the film's surprises. Also, we got to chat with Harry Dyer, who plays Aidan. Harry is an actor and comedian best known for his work on Jack the Giant Slayer. Fantastically talented, and we had a great talk with him about the films of Guillermo del Toro, especially Hellboy. 
When Jeff gets into schmoozing mode, he does <laughs> tend to lose track of time and purpose. Luckily, Graham and I were there to drag him to the, watch the filming. The sequence we watched being filmed involved our two heroes sneaking into a masquerade ball thrown by a rather nasty character called Stoneface and his evil sidekick, the masked jester we, that we mentioned earlier. As Flynn and Aiden make their way through the crowd, they are spotted and that begins a rather tense chase. It was absolutely fascinating to watch. Firstly, and most importantly for us, knowing where to stand so that we never ended up in the shot. Then, secondly, watching the various takes required for each component of that sequence. There are long shots, close-ups, pickups, every aspect taking critical time to set up. The crew were very focused and professional. While it took time, not a moment was wasted. Oh, and there is a nice reference in there to Eyes Wide Shut. Indeed. And behind all of this was the constant presence of Phil, checking the script, organising crew and actors, assisting with pick-up dialogue. And you know what struck me? There were no raised voices, no tension on set. It was all very friendly. If an actor needed help, Phil was there. In fact, by the end of our time on set, I would swear that he'd been cloned into three. No one person could keep that level of energy and focus up for so long, could so, they? No, certainly not you, Jeff. You need to lie down after reading a book. We were on set for five hours and it flew by. When we left at one thirty in the morning, more scenes were still being shot. Extras and crew still on high energy to get the work done. It was incredible. Indeed it was, and it is our intention, working with Phil, to bring you regular updates about Last Chancers up until its release. Next up, as we said earlier, we will have an interview planned with Phil, the director, after he has finally had a chance to get some sleep. In that interview, we will go into the inspiration for the film and get further ideas of all the hard work Phil has put into the movie. Keep you updated as to how the editing process is continuing and each step that this then requires in order for the finished film to be released. Phil, thank you for your hospitality. We really appreciated it. Photos from the event will be up with our show notes. After all that, let's talk about some films on release now as we go to our review section. Let's get our review section started this month with Graham's choice, First Man. A film so special we had a team outing to the BFI Odeon IMAX to see it on the largest screen in Europe. Now, Neil, I've got to admit, I was a bit confused. I was thinking, why is there a sequel to Early Man Out so soon after the original Aardman movie? Keep taking the tablets, Jeff. The movie is, of course, the story of astronaut Neil Armstrong, as portrayed by Ryan Gosling. First Man follows Armstrong's life from his days as a civilian test pilot, while he is also dealing with a terrible personal tragedy. From there, his career is charted through the Gemini missions to the ultimate 1960s space challenge, landing on the moon. All of the time, while he is holding inside his emotional trauma from the earlier tragedy. Within the film, there are some spectacular recreations of famous events, Director Damien Chazelle used IMAX cameras to film them. Graham, as a science expert, were you convinced? Completely convinced and thrilled. <laughs> I absolutely loved this movie. The minute it was over, as I sat 
stunned and drained by the whole visceral experience, I thought, yeah, movie of the year. The movie's director, Damien Chazelle, described the tale as existing between the moon and the kitchen sink. I think that describes the movie so well. This movie pans seamlessly from the epic to the mundane, from the heart-rending sadness of a child's death to the soaring euphoria of standing on the lunar surface. Anyone who listens to this podcast will be bored with me saying how much I love movies that just drop you right into the action, no expositions, intros or voiceovers, just hit the ground running. This movie does exactly that. Its opening scene sees Armstrong in his X-15 rocket plane as he battles to return from the edge of space. It's that opening sequence that pretty much sets the cinematic tone for the entire movie. You see a number of repeated themes in this film. Man and machine, NASA industrial landscape and personal interactions in in the Armstrong household. And finally, the lunar surface piece. The challenge for this movie is... How do you build drama and suspense around a well-documented historical event? Well, I think this is done so well in this movie with a constant switching back and forth between the personal and the professional life of Neil Armstrong, a notoriously private man who did not care about the media circus that surrounded the space race of the 1960s, but was totally focused on the mission. This total focus of Armstrong's professional life is the mission, to the extent that he can often come across as cold and distant. However, Armstrong was a real person, and that was his personality. It may not be a very cinematic personality, and Ryan Gosling had very little to work with as an actor, but it is his deeds that Armstrong will be remembered for, and not the fact that he was focus-driven, and as a lot of people online are now saying, seems to be a high-functioning autistic man. I don't care. I find Gosling's portrayal believable and accurate, but back to how to make an engaging moving movie out of a private man. This is done through the things he did in his professional life, the incredible bravery, the loss of his close friends and the sheer audacity of even attempting to put a man on the moon using what is effectively World War II technology. So this movie is packed with scenes where we see Neil's personal bravery, the test flights of the flying bedstead, which was the simulator for the lunar landing module, the near disaster of the docked Gemini 4 mission, and the loss of friends and colleagues in a number of air crashes and the terrible fire on Apollo 1. The drama builds through his professional life, whilst the story builds through his personal life, and in particular his relationship with his wife Janet, played brilliantly by Claire Foy and dealing with the grief and death of his baby daughter, Karen. In brief, just a great movie and a fitting tribute to a great moment in human history. And the fact that Orange Man refuses to see it is just the icing on the cake for me. (laughs) As Apollo 11 takes off, the whole cinema shaking with the noise and the rattling of the rocket. You could feel the suffocating claustrophobia. I looked at Graham and he had a big silly grin on his face. (laughs) I realised I was smiling too. I enjoyed it from beginning to end. I agree with Graham from the increasingly distant relationship with his family to the claustrophobia of the rocket as it hurtles out of the atmosphere. Okay, let's come down from the moon and return to the planet Earth for a moment. (laughs) Now, I did like it, but let's put this like into perspective. I preferred and I thought it was a much better film, the critically and criminally underrated Venom, The First Man. Graham, get a look off your face. That's not meant as a put-down. It's still a great movie. It's just being contrary. That's not a look on my face, Jeff. That's me straining to kick you under the table. Why do you think I moved so far away? (laughs) 
<laughs> However, for all the reasons you have said about Neil Armstrong, he's a difficult character to like, and as a result, I think you could have cut 20 minutes out of this film, and it would have given the opportunity to make the events punchier and probably even brought some emotion into it. Because it had none, really. Where this film really succeeds is in putting you as close as possible to being at the actual event, whether it's a Gemini mission where you feel as though the spaceship is beginning to fall apart, or that crucial time as Neil Armstrong tries to land the lunar module before the fuel runs out. And I must admit, I was starting to nod off then. On a technical level, (laughs) all of that is fine, but the characters just didn't take me with them. Goslin gives the tight, controlled performance which is expected, and Foy is great, but I just didn't engage with them. Also, Cory Stoll shocked me as Buzz Aldrin. Graham, what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly thought it was better than Venom. Um, and I know, I, I mean, he is a notoriously difficult and cold and, and quite a humble character for a man who set foot on the moon and will be remembered in history long before, long after kings and queens have disappeared. But Buzz Aldrin? Buzz Aldrin, uh, he was a bit of a pain in the ass, and I thought that was a pretty accurate portrayal of the man. He doesn't come out well in any of the books or any of the TV series I've ever watched, and he's a bit of annoying. And if you look at the Buzz Aldrin in the, the film, he's basically going, oh, OK, that guy's died, that guy's failed to land his plane, so that gets me one step closer to being the first mm. man on the moon. And yes, he was a team player and all of that, but he was also focused on him being one of the first men on the moon. OK, he got to be second man on the moon and he'll be remembered for that. But I don't think he was a likeable character. In fact, I don't think any of them are likeable characters. Any and, of the... and, and that is part of my point. And, anyway, and could... you can't glam them up. You're not, you're not going no, to be No, no, I accept that. I accept that. See, we can find something we can agree on. Let's flip to cinematography then. OK, back to cinematography. As I said earlier, there are four main thematic elements of this movie. The man and the machine theme. That's all the scenes inside the spacecraft and the spaceships, which are shot in ultra-close-up, uh, handheld, and, and in 16mm. The NASA industrial landscape theme is 35mm, uh, featuring long tracking shots and wide angles. The scenes on the surface of the moon were shot on IMAX cameras, which give the moon that truly otherworldly feeling. Lastly, the 35mm personal interactions in the Armstrong household that contain muted lighting and rooms and corridors and, and lots of framing. Uh, I thought it was interesting that the shots of outdoor family life were mostly at night. However, when he's on the moon in high def, Neil's memories of his daughter is all in bright sunlight. I mean, was she the light of his life? It's a nice uh, motif they had there on the moon, that um, everything was incredible detail, but his memories were in colour and bright. Mm. It was lovely. Yeah, technically spot on. It was everything I so wanted it to be. And again, I've got to agree with you on a technical level. The film is fantastic. Mm. The use of 16mm for certain aspects gives it an authentic period 60 setting. Then that frame rate changes all the way to the stunningly realised IMAX moon sequences. I stress again, I have no problem with this film on a technical level. It is the characters which stop this from being a great film for me. Okay, shall we move on to then the, the one thing that I 
do think we all agreed on that the sound of this movie the sound of this movie is exceptional not since Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk have I been so impressed with the sound editing in a film it's not the immediately obvious stuff like the roar of the rockets but the more disturbing and worrying sounds of bending and flexing hmm. of metal under strain the clicks and clacks of the switches and the circuit breakers just added to the wonderful handheld photography at points I thought I was watching NASA stock footage the effects were so real again I agree with you what I would add to what you've just said is I thought Justin Hurwitz's score is fantastic mm. The low-key, almost mournful approach to the Earth sequences, the dramatic scoring and the use of the theremin for the moon sequences are all beautifully judged. Whilst I do not consider First Man for my movie of the year, I certainly consider it for music score of the year. Oh, wow, okay. Right, so um, we've had a number of listener comments, very interesting and diverse words, and not one of them, Jeff, said Venom was better. Okay. They're so, misinformed. <laughs> Fake news. Fake news. Okay. Phil the Bear says First Man is slow, methodical, and claustrophobic. Everything is shot in close to the characters, giving us a slightly unnerving, tense feeling. The result is stunning filmmaking. New listener Jay called First Man Film of the Year so far. I can't disagree with that. New listener Ben, who came with us to London to watch it at the BAFI IMAX said this of the film and its technical achievements. The in and out of the atmosphere flight scene and first-person camera work team up with excruciatingly noisy sound to deliver a visceral sense of claustrophobia and imminent equipment failure. Trying to see through those foggy visors to the violently shaking horizon from the tiny windows of the X-15 whilst having my teeth shaken by the sound of a screaming rocket engine, gives a sensation of being there with the character, at the very edge of the envelope, sitting on a missile heading to the edge of space. There are a few panoramic shots of spacecraft and silvery lunar vistas, but in the main, the vehicular scenes are shot from within the cockpit and canopies of the spacecraft. This adds to the extreme sense of claustrophobia present throughout the film. There is a great deal on the effects of grief in this film, and it makes me think of how we often focus solely on the legends and worship the heroes regardless of the carnage their driven and competitive natures leave in their wake. A very interesting and different take from Philippa, which is certainly worthy of discussion. And Philippa says... I got frustrated that this was just another film made by a bunch of men about men being men. Nothing about this film was new. They tried to put a new spin on it with the emotional size, but otherwise it's every other white guy in space drama film ever made. I nearly stood up and cheered when his wife told his boss off and finally told him off too. I am not a fan of space travel anyway, and it just highlighted boys and the amount of money, stress, heartbreak and lives they will use to make bigger and better toys. The emotional side was well played and Claire Foy should win an award. Even when she wasn't speaking, her face expressed everything the scene needed. Okay, time for us to sum this one up, guys. Your thoughts? I just want to say before going into my thoughts, I mean, those were fascinating listener comments. Mm. And listening to to it back now, it just shows, I mean... Yeah, I'm really impressed with the people that that listen to the show. And thank you. Well, thank you for your continued support. And also thank you for comments of, of that level of discussion. Thank you very much indeed. 
So I'll go into my sum up of the film, which yep. is slightly different to what we've just heard. So when 2018 started, I marked this as one of my must-see films. For whatever reason, it just didn't fire all boosters for me. In fact, looking back at director Damien Chazelle's work, it's no wonder that Whiplash works the best. It's full of unpleasant characters doing unpleasant things to one another and doesn't need an emotional heart. Both First Man and La La Land try and fail to find that emotional centre, even though they are both technically very accomplished films. So back to First Man, I liked it, but I think its chances of award glory will fade quickly. Neil, I'm sure you'll agree. No. Um, I agree with Philip. It was Boys With Toys, and the film showed the protest at that time about the vast amount of money will being literally burnt. Um, for me, I, I loved it because I was utterly taken with the film because it took me back to when I was a kid, and that, I think, made the difference for me. Was watching it all on a black-and-white TV in the middle of the night. Fantastic. I thought it was a wonderful movie and well worth the train journey from hell stood all the way up from Swindon to Paddington. Couldn't we watch Paddington 2 instead? No, that was great. <laughs> Paddington 2 is great, but this was great as well. This movie, for me, captured the essence of the man, the time and the mission. The direction was perfect. Both Ryan Gosling and Claire Foy delivered excellent performances. The cinematography and sound editing were out of this world, no pun intended. For someone like me who had a bedroom full of Airfix models of all the Apollo spacecraft, it was just a treat. Yes, it can be viewed as boys' toys movie, but I think at its core it is about a very humble man focusing his life on an outrageous dream whilst dealing with deep emotional personal grief and inability to express basic human emotions. I loved the fact that he was more frightened of talking to his kids than travelling to the moon. I think the technology is really only an enabler to get Neil to the moon but once he is there it is his human moments that define this movie not the rockets. It's a movie about soaring ambition, courage, loneliness, personal tragedy and humans. We might stand on another world, but we will still be defined by who we are and the sum of our experiences. Yes, definitely my movie of the year. I loved it. Now, if we could get our Neil to the moon, I think I would rate this film higher. <laughs> Do you know what? I, I, I was re listening to you and I just thought, oh, I know Jeff's going to say. <laughs> so predictable. Never, so predictable. <laughs> okay. So if you enjoyed First Man and Philippa, I'm sorry you didn't, uh, I would also recommend Apollo 13. It's an excellent Ron Howard-directed movie. The Right Stuff, which details the qualities needed to get into the astronaut programme. Last Man on the Moon, astronaut Gene Cernan's emotional look back at the 12 men who stood on the moon's surface. It's on Netflix as well, so it's good. And From the Earth to the Moon, which is a wonderful mini-series that charts the steps in detail that put a man on the moon. It's on YouTube, although I don't think it should be. Uh, and finally, one of my favourite films, Moon, by director Duncan Jones. Nothing at all to do with the moon landing, landings, but it has the word moon in it, and it's a great film. Neil Armstrong famously walked on the moon in 1969. Now, oddly enough, our next film for review is set in that very same year. It's bad times at the El Royale. Bloody hell, it's almost like we planned this. Indeed, Graham. I would say we are finally becoming more professional. Well, two of us. 
Ah, oh, you're being too modest, Jeff. I think over the last nine shows, you've really improved to bumbling amateur. You just need to persevere. Treat this as your own personal moonshot. Cheeky bastard. <laughs> Back to the film. The El Royale is a rundown hotel which straddles the California-Nevada state line. You can book a room in one state or the other. On this particular night, a motley group of travellers arrive. There's a priest, played by Jeff Bridges, a soul singer, Cynthia Erivo, a salesman, John Hamm, and a hippie, Dakota Johnson. Sounds like the beginnings of a bad joke. However, when you also factor in the creepiest concierge since Norman Bates, played by the excellent Lewis Pullman, then the joke is a very dark one indeed. In fact, almost no one, and I include the hotel in this, is what they seem. And before this murderous night is out, many secrets will come to light. Now, it sounds like an Agatha Christie novel mixed with Reservoir Dogs. Neil, is it entertaining? Definitely, Jeff. As with all Agatha Christie films, it builds slowly, developing the characters well. It's Tarantino-esque, which from this month is a genuine word in the Oxford English Dictionary, which is nice. It's important not to know what happens. Don't watch the trailer, for example. I will do my best not to ruin it with spoilers. It's creepy, particularly the hotel concierge, and even the most innocent have their moments. There's a bit that made me nearly jump out of my skin. 140 minutes flew by. The third act does drift a touch, but I can forgive that. The first two acts are so good. I I like the third act. I I didn't think it dipped at all. I thought it was excellent. In the first two acts, uh, they did a lot of setup, uh, and the third took me on a roller coaster of how are they going to resolve this issue? The third act was good, as all the lies unravelled and the motivations clarified. I agree with you, Graham. Not only, in fact, does it not dip. I was actually astounded when it finished to learn how much time had passed. It starts, as we've said, as a Tarantino-like film, but that's only the first act. As it develops, it becomes almost an allegory of the 1960s, distilled down into this one night near the end of the decade. It is fantastic, and almost certainly will be in my films of the year. Writer-director Drew Goddard, largely known for writing and executive producer roles, gets his second chance to direct after Cabin in the Woods and largely delivers. He again takes a building and puts a whole bunch of characters in and shakes them up. Taking that plot, Neil, it sounds like you've seen Cabin in the Woods. When did you watch that then? You and Lucy went on and on and (laughs) on about it. He gives them time and space to develop in the first two acts and each reveals their secrets if they have any. The third act is a touch derivative, but I did find it entertaining, not just not as good as the first two. Each actor gets their chance to shine, while some shout out reasons to distrust them. The over-the-top salesman, John Hamm, the obviously no priest, or is he? Jeff Bridges and the creepy Chris Hemsworth. Others seem genuinely innocent at first. Lewis Pullman as the concierge and Cynthia Revo as the struggling singer are both superb in the way they slowly reveal their personalities and background. Last but not least are the wonderfully hippie Dakota Johnson and relative newcomer Kaylee Spini, recently in Pacific Rim and really good in her largely silent role here. Yeah, I loved her. Um, I loved her building the Tower of Chairs so that she could (laughs) swing on the chandelier, all done without a word. The flashbacks to her psychotic episode were also very well underplayed. For me, it's the same with all the characters. And again, I go back to how they are representatives of this 
allegory of the 1960s. There's that distrust of religion, mm. empowerment for black people, the Manson murders, and much more besides. It's so clever. And within that, this great performances. Jeff Bridges, fantastic, and I understood everything he said for once. It's Lewis Pullman as that creepy concierge, and Chris Hemsworth. I would never have believed he could pull off a character so complex. I love the way everyone had a backstory that explains their presence and how they all interact makes this such a compelling watch. Yeah, I, I like the fact that the characters in the lobby of the hotel were very different from the people they became in the hotel rooms. Uh, yeah. Arguably the finest character is the hotel itself, apparently based on the Cal Naver, owned at one point by Frank Sinatra, but now long past its heyday of the rich and famous. It still retains more secrets than it has a right to. I love that the freely available coffee was still 25 cents. Utterly pointless, and yet just one of the vast number of fine details that made this hotel so intriguing. A lot of the music is provided by Jukebox or Cynthia Arrivo. 60s Montone, always a win. Agreed. It was an excellent choice of music throughout. And there was a nice dig at Phil Spector in one of the early Mm. scenes. As for main composer Michael Giacchino, yet another winner. This guy seems to be able to go from action theme base in other films to quirky, almost in a heartbeat. It's a score that racks up the tension and is just wonderful in this movie. As for the cinematography, Seamus McGarvey, with credits as long as your arm, sets up the hotel with a distinct difference between California and Nevada. The rain outside adds claustrophobia. Yep, I agree. Exceptional cinematography. Uh, that rain and the terrible hotel room lighting. <laughs> the entrance to the hotel was very nice, but the rooms were terrible. So much brown. No wonder the entire third act moved into the hotel lobby. Well, we all liked it, but what did our listeners think? Phil the Bear says, Goddard's directorial debut cabin in the woods sets the bar too high for me for on this one. A hugely entertaining crime story with intertwining plot threads somehow managed to disappoint in the final third with a weak villain. And yet, I think I want to see it again. New listener Juliet says it was mind-blowingly good and very Fargo-esque. They'll try and get that into the Oxford English Dictionary. If it isn't already, I should have checked that. Paul's view is Bad Times was excellent. Cast was pretty much perfect and loved the pacing of it. Eight and a half out of ten. From Deck, clever movie with a well-written script. Casts were excellent, especially Mr Bridges. Great soundtrack, nice, slow, steady direction, sometimes not even moving the camera, just letting the cast play out their parts. Reminded me a bit of The Hateful Eight. Eight out of ten. Sarah was left speechless, in a good way, by the film. OK, guys, time to sum up. I just want to quickly... Just agree with Paul on that. Yeah, the pacing, I forgot to mention that. The pacing was excellent. Mm, it it yes. just had a constant forward momentum and you were always interested. It was very well done. Yeah, yeah. I, I loved it. It was a smart movie, great look and excellent performances. Oh, and it had a great script with absolutely no improv. A movie that took its time but never felt slow. I loved the amount of misdirection in this movie. On a number of occasions, I thought something was going in one direction, only to find I got it completely wrong. Great writing, great writing. Uh, It felt to me like a very traditional thriller, despite it having a very 21st century vibe. As I said earlier, one of the best films of the year, 
which makes its box office failure even more astounding. Shocking. It's mm. got cult status written all over it and reminds me in many ways of Hotel Artemis from earlier this year, yeah. another film yeah. that is going to be a cult favourite. Director Goddard has taken an ensemble piece. He's made an absorbing, allegorical tale out of it. Quite simply, this is brilliant. Really enjoyable. It's unpredictable and kept me thinking. Even at the end, there's still a puzzle. Who's on the tape? I know. Anybody who wants to know, no, just write into us. No. <laughs> Pro- probably the thing that got most discussion afterwards. We've discussed three options. Send comments for your ideas. Yes, Jeff, I th- I've seen the know tape. you think you know. While it <laughs> loses its pace in the final act, there's still plenty to enjoy with Chris Hemsworth, who apparently lost two stones from after his uh, time on Infinity Wars. So he, he slimmed down from Thor... To, to evil nutcase. Oh, to to Charles Manson. Sake, <laughs> yes. Bloody reference. So he's channeling his Charles Manson with, yeah. a, with a drop of Jim Jones Kool Aid. Yeah. <laughs> Other films to watch. All of the above, really. Malachi Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, Tarantino, particularly Hateful Eight and Reservoir Dogs. Cabin in the Woods, whatever that's like. <laughs> Hotel Artemis from earlier in the year and Fargo. Now over to the final review of the month, the sequel to Halloween, which was too scary for me to watch. You say that, Neil, yet what I don't understand is how come you watched The Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre? And The Shining. I was was young, well, that and peer pressure, and the latter was banned at the time, so that was fun. (laughs) We will find out shortly if you made the right choice. Firstly, let's set up the plot. Forget all the other sequels to the original 1978 version of Halloween. They don't exist in this timeline. Also, ignore those Rob Zombie remakes. Instead, the assumption is Michael Myers, Nick Castle, was recaptured right after the Night of Terror in 1978. Now, 40 years later, Michael, as in passive as ever, is about to be transferred to a more secure mental institution. Meanwhile, the survivor of that earlier night of horror, Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, is now a grandmother. She is also a survivalist, a woman who has spent her whole life waiting for Michael to escape so that she can kill him. This focus has cost her all the relationships Laurie holds dear. However, she is determined to stop the evil that is Michael Myers. And, of course, during the transfer to his new home, Michael escapes. He makes his way back to Haddonfield to continue his killing spree and directly to a confrontation with Laurie Strode. Jeff, is it a worthy reboot to the Halloween series? Well, it is certainly more worthwhile than many of the other films made under the Halloween banner over the years. As sequels go, I would say it's up there with the excellent Halloween H2O. Clearly, this version of Halloween is made by people who love the original. After all, they've managed to entice both Jamie Lee Curtis and John Carpenter to return to the series. A shame, then, that it doesn't hit the horror heights I was expecting. I think you summed it up best, Graham, when we were leaving the screening. He said, it's more thriller than horror, though I would say I didn't even thrill that much. And I think I I made a small tactical error with this movie in that I saw the original on the Tuesday and this Halloween five days later on the Sunday. 
seeing them so close together sort of spoiled the new one for me. The original was very good and scary. And despite, or maybe because it was made for two quid and filmed in under four weeks, it was very immediate and thrilling and worked. The sequel felt a little too slick. However, saying that, I thought Jamie Lee Curtis's performance was excellent. She was exhibiting survivor guilt on steroids. Indeed. Let's talk a bit about those performances, Mm. and particularly the female performances. The main reason to watch this film is that excellent performance from Jamie Lee Curtis. Having also watched the original recently, you can see the transition from this traumatised teenager to this hard-drinking, gun-toting grandmother. I would mark this as one of the best performances of the year. However, it's in a horror film, which means there'll never be any awards (laughs) for Miss Curtis. Now let's look at the other female members of the Strode family, as played by Judy Greer and Andy Matichak. They're also extremely good. They are believable characters who have suffered in the shadow of Laurie Strode's abuse. And that's part of the point of the film, and this is where it does work. How abuse impacts many people, not just the ones that are initially victimised. Now what's not so good are the male performances. To be honest, I was happy to see most of them killed off in the most unpleasant of ways. Wasn't tough enough, guys. The character of Ray in particular, as played by Toby Huss, is quite frankly one of the most irritating, pain-in-the-ass characters I've encountered on screen all year. And his death wasn't painful enough. Tell us what you think, Jeff. Uh, I will, back. I will. And it, it's quite funny that he's, you know, a rela- he's related into the Strode family, and when he dies, nobody ever mentions him again. <laughs> They're probably checking that insurance policy. <laughs> Even male actors like Will Patton, normally excellent, it's just two-dimensional here, and he fades away when compared to the excellent work Charles Cyphers completed in the original Halloween play in that police chief. Your thoughts, Graham? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I thought the male characters were all pretty weak, but I think that was the point. It makes Meyer seem even more powerful. I was, however, disappointed, like you, by the sheriff deputy's role played by Will Patton in this movie. In the original, the policeman was far more uh, three-dimensional and believable. He was a, a strong, solid touchstone for the movie whilst there was chaos going on in his town. Patton's character seemed a little lost in this movie. Absolutely agree. And a shame that there is that problem with some of the roles as written. And let's go and look at director David George Green because he's clearly a huge fan of the original movie however he's not just a director he's a co-script writer he worked with uh, his friend comic actor Danny McBride they've created some wonderful homage moments in the movie they've just missed out on this characterization particularly on the male side if we look at the homage the camera movements and editing are clearly designed to bring back to mind the original there are some nice reversals on that as well I'll give you two examples when Andy Matichak is looking out of her classroom mm. and sees her grandmother where in the first film Michael Wyers would have been standing. And also there's that long tracking shot seemingly in one take of Michael Myers' Halloween night killing spree. On a technical level, clearly they nailed it. It's with the script, which we'll come on to shortly, where things really went wrong. Uh, I, I thought the direction was spot on doing a sequel of a classic is always going to be a tough gig in spite of my reservations i thought the director did a very good job i also liked the nods to the previous film i particularly liked the non-tracking shot where the camera actually freezes in front of the window of a house 
but at an angle where you can see Michael go round the back of the house and come in through the back door and then kill the woman in front of the camera. I thought that was a lovely just juxtaposition compared with the original. Okay, now, fair point. But let's take all that in context with the film script. Mm. We can neatly divide this now into the good and the bad. <laughs> now, let's take the good first. I've already mentioned the excellent female characters, and they are women that don't need men to help them survive. In fact, for me, the best moment in the film is when Karen, Judy Greer, who is Laurie Strode's daughter, Mm. starts almost weeping for her life and calling out to Laurie to help her, almost reverting back to a defenceless child. At that point, Michael appears. Karen literally becomes everything her mother taught her to be. She utters the line, gotcha, and starts shooting him. It is the first horror film for the Me Too generation, a powerful comment on female empowerment. The sequence I've just described is also part of the best section of the film, a very exciting finale. Halloween is constructed to bring Laurie and family face-to-face with Myers for that big showdown. A shame that some of this design is very poor. Now, as you see, I've slipped into the bad part. A few examples of what frustrated me. The opening involves a couple of insensitive English podcasters. I know someone who's perfect casting for that. You mentioned two podcasters. Yes, Neil times two. <laughs> yeah, they were showing. Say that. <laughs> they were showing Michael the mask he wore on his killing spree, except they didn't show it to his face, but to his back. I understand why. They didn't want us to see Michael's face. However, it could have been done with cutaways and camera setups from behind Michael. As it stands, the opening of the film is silly and pointless. Also, there's a twist as to how Michael escapes. That, to me, is just lazy writing. And said twist is just stupid in context. Here is what would have made it more interesting. Point is made earlier on in the film that Michael has made a monster out of Laurie. What if, in an elaboration of that theme... Laurie tries to kill Michael while in transit and he then escapes. She has to hunt him down but is also the reason for the new slayings. Much more interesting and ambiguous. Graham, what do you think? Actually, I think there there probably was that in the film because didn't she sit outside the hospital or the place where he's been and I thought ah here we go she's going to try and take him out when he's in transit but that never went anywhere no to to me in the way it's filmed is she's watching to make sure he gets 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 to the to the bus and to the new place he's supposed to be but you're quite right had uh, and actually that's another plot I hadn't thought of until you just mentioned it if she was watching why wasn't she following that bus Uh, yeah um, and yeah, that, that's a good point. The opening, I agree, was silly uh, with the podcasters trying to interview Michael's back. However, it did set them up nicely for the first people to be killed. Because um, <laughs> when they died, I thought, yeah, good, they're gone. Um, the escape from the bus was very contrived. Yeah, not really if you consider the hokey twist uh, that was added later. <laughs> um, they did cover that it well with a really spooky discovery scene with that young boy and his grandfather but all all in all the script was not bad and they handled the plot point of the granddaughter's mobile phone well i thought that was very cleverly done yeah and you know we're talking about the script and i think the plot in needs a uh would have needed a lot more work but there's some great zinger quotes oh, throughout yes. this some one-liners you know laurie's he's waited for this night he's waited for me i've waited for him and then, you know, one of the last singers, Happy Halloween, Michael. <laughs> These just give that audience buzz. They're great. And moving on to the music, and this is a real highlight of the film. John Carpenter returns. Enough said, really. 
Here he's back with his son Cody to rework the old themes and add a few new memorable ones. The sequence of the Halloween killing spree is memorably scored. Listening to this wonderful music is like catching up with an old friend. Not only that, you've got it working so well in the film, but it also works standalone. Trust me, I've got the album. Yeah, and I thought, because I really enjoyed the, the start of the movie, where this, this, the, the title sequence, you know, where they had the original look, the original uh, font uh, and, and colours, and they had they actually had a very clever bit where they had the, uh, the pumpkin head going backwards. And, well, and, well, reinstating itself, yes. you know, everything's flat after all the other yeah. Halloween films, and this film is going to be different. Yeah, so let's flip to listener comments. Well, we've only got one from Jay. Starts off feeling like a grown-up Halloween film, but then as they started to pull in the familiar Halloween themes, babysitters, etc., it remains well executed, but it felt like it had been done before in every other Halloween film. That said, love the opening titles and the soundtrack, which is just what you said, Graham. So, let's sum up. Graham, what do you think? Yeah, I thought it was a good spooky thriller. I'd not call it a horror film, as I think the horror genre has evolved to be much darker and more psychological than a story about a random disturbed man who stabs people with kitchen utensils. Um, The excellent performance from the three principal women carry this movie. However, I don't think it will be remembered as fondly as the original in 40 years' time feels to me like it's a good start to a new series of Halloween movies franchise. Thank you, Graham. Neil, do you want to sum up? Oh, no, you'd have to watch the bloody film, wouldn't you? (laughs) So, as for me, it has its moments, mostly in the female performances and at a technical level. When you compare this with the nonsense that is The Nun, you can see it has class. Just unfortunate that the script needed a little more work. Great to see Jamie Lee Curtis back. I wish the rest of it matched her talents. If Halloween appeals to you, then I would recommend shouting boo at Neil and the following good film examples. (laughs) Halloween, the original and the best, a template for horror films in the generations which have followed. Terminator 2, compare Sarah Connor with this Halloween's version of Laurie Strode. Halloween H2O, ignore Halloween Resurrection, the film that followed. This is the proper ending for that first Halloween timeline. Another great performance from Jamie Lee Curtis. The Fog. Jamie Lee Curtis in another great John Carpenter film and features a classic music score. So what else have we been watching this month? Let's find out. Movies and TV series from me this month. Movies first. Obviously I watched the original Halloween, but I also watched the excellent A Star Is Born with two standout performances from Bradley Cooper and the surprise for me, that was Lady Gaga. I didn't know she could sing, or act for that matter. Excellent stuff. I also saw, with the rest of the guys, the World War I movie Journey's End. I can't say I enjoyed it, but it still rates as one of the best movies I've watched this year. Brilliantly produced on a shoestring budget, the pointlessness of the entire war summed up in two hours. Jeff has done a podcast short about this movie that will be going out shortly. Shortly. Do you see what I did there? Oh, never mind. On TV, on the BBC, like a lot of other listeners, I've been watching the excellent new Doctor Who. I'm two shows in and Jodie Whittaker has nailed the role. What? You mean Doctor Who's a woman? (laughs) Keep up, Jeff. Keep up. 
<laughs> welcome to the uh, 21st century. Whatever year it is. <laughs> is yeah. 2018. Yeah. Oh, the stories are not bad, and the new companions have an interesting dynamic. Uh, but this show has a lot of potential, I think. I think so. I've also been watching Daredevil Series 3 on Netflix. Only four shows in, and I'm not sure where this is going, but the last two were excellent, so I'm sticking with it. When you say the last two, series or shows? Series. The okay. last two series. Yeah, series one and two were excellent. I know that Netflix have now cancelled the Luke Cage and uh, Iron, Iron Fist. Fist. Yeah. Rumour being they're combining them into one. Yeah, yeah. That was a shame because I thought Iron Fist ended on a real high and an interesting end, but uh, yeah. there you go. Right, for me, as always, cinema, TV and radio choices for cinema, A Star is Born. I have to agree with Graham. This is a remarkable achievement. Both Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga are excellent in a film which focuses on the intimate rather than the spectacle of the rock star life. Venom, another surprise. Tom Hardy gives a great performance in a film which sends up the current wave of superhero madness by dealing with a supervillain. Director Ruben Fleischer brings the same humour to this project as he did to Zombieland all those years ago and sequelise in next year. Forget the negative press about Venom, go see and enjoy and remember... It's better than First Man. No, it's no, not. No, it isn't. No, it's not. Mile 22. Without a doubt, one of the worst films of the year. Told you. <laughs> <laughs> the combination of Mark Wahlberg and director Peter Berg has never let me down before. It's worked well in projects like Deepwater Horizon, Lone Survivor, Patriot Day. All that skill deserts them in an action movie, and that's in inverted commas with confused action sequences and terrible characterizations, Avoid at all costs. I told you. <laughs> told you. It's chronic. It's dreadful. Yeah, but Graham, you also say Venom isn't as good as First Man. Venom is good. Yes, Venom is good. Good, but yeah, yeah, it's not in the same league. Okay, so let's flip the TV. Krypton Season 1. Yes. Graham mentioned this previously. I thought it was rather good. It's spun out a little too much over 10 episode length, but... Yeah, it's still good. I mean, it's set well before the birth of Superman, so it's more politics than superhero nonsense. It's great to see the underrated Colin Salmon used so effectively for one scene. He's a wonderful actor. In many ways, this series is a metaphor for Brexit, and I'll be watching season two next year. (laughs) For radio, Moonraker. Over the past few years, BBC Radio 4 have quietly been making the original Bond novels as radio dramas. They are following the book plots and time periods and all-star the excellent Toby Stevens as James Bond. He was, of course, a Bond villain in Die Another Day. Absorbing and very entertaining, though not what you would call politically correct. I loved it. So for me, A Star is Born, Venom and Journey's End have all been covered and all excellent. I managed to find time to finish the last two episodes of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime. A fantastic character and not a bad stand-up comedian either. I also started re-watching Killing Eve on BBC iPlayer again to extremely strong female protagonists trying to outsmart each other. Sorry, Neil, if you want strong female protagonists, go watch Halloween. <laughs> OK, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. OK. I won't. <laughs> I saw Smallfoot. Good, but not great. Themes were don't always listen to everything people in authority tell you and we can all live together. Raised it above the norm. Voice actors, including Channing Tating, Zendaya and Danny DeVito, were all good, but there's one voiced by James Corden. 
Oh, oh well. Well. <laughs> well, your movie news is set, Neil. <laughs> and I also saw Terminal out this year and only played in one cinema. I saw it on Amazon Prime. It was free. Featuring a rather stellar cast of Margot Robbie, Simon Pegg, Dexter Fletcher and Mike Myers. Yes, that one. And newcomer Max Irons. It's a slow, waiting-for-Godot-type film that resolves itself well at the end. A mystery with a neat twist. Just not very good. As for next month, Neil will be reviewing... Slaughterhouse Rules. On 31st of October, what can go wrong? <laughs> Jeff will be reviewing Peterloo. Oh, more politics. A bit of politics there, yes. <laughs> and Graham will be reviewing Widows. OK, one more last thing to do. <sighs> it's the award-winning at the Flicks Quiz. What awards? Did you make it yourself? <laughs> no, it came with Blue Peter instructions. And talking of awards, your sports awards ready oh. for you for collection from the Saudi embassy. I've had a special squad flown in to give it to you. It's okay. No hurry. <laughs> okay, time for a game of connections. Four sets of actors and actresses. And for each one, I would like the name of the film they appeared in together. No cheating, lads. Number one, Tom Hanks and Amy Adams. Number two. Amy Adams and Christian Bale. Number three, Christian Bale and Anne Hathaway. See the connection you're making? <laughs> it's a role. Okay, yeah. Number four, final one, Anne Hathaway and Matthew McConaughey. Good luck. Let us know what you think, guys. Answers next time. OK, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. So it only remains for us to say... Well, time of year. Boo! Sorry, Neil, didn't mean to scare you. <laughs> Speak to you all next month. Jeff, what are you doing? Take off that mask, put that kitchen knife down. <laughs> <laughs> and to everyone else, thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening and, and goodbye. goodbye.